Hello, everybody. This is Tom Harrison and Ken Krogh. We're here at the Eternal Core podcast. Hey, we've got Alema Harrington back with us. He's, he's, I'm grateful. He's willing to share his own story. And this, this is you and your twin brother, I understand, growing up in yeah. Hawaii. Yeah, we're Punahou High School, which, by the way, is the same high school as Barack Obama. Oh, yes. um, And also Steve Case, who, who was the founder of AOL. Um, and Al Harrington, who's my father and, and an actor on Hawaii Five O, and and um, yeah, we're fortunate to to grow up in uh, in Hawaii on on Oahu. And people always ask if you're born in Hawaii, like, oh, did you go to you were on the North Shore? And, and no, we weren't on the North Shore. <laughs> Got plenty of family on the North Shore, but we grew up on the town side, uh, behind uh, the valley behind the University of Hawaii, is is where we grew up. So yeah, this is. My brother was a, a quarterback, and and I was a running back at BYU. I came out of, or at uh, out of high school as the leading rusher in the state in Hawaii, and, and ended up at BYU on a on a scholarship, and you know, great was grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, yeah I think I can see Barack Obama over here. In yeah, the he's right back there. So yeah. There's the only picture. Yeah, back, back there he went 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 as Barry was his name. <laughs> that's Barry. Right. Barry Obama. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about, I mean, you've got an amazing story that yeah. you've been willing to start sharing that's yeah. doing a lot of good out in the community. You know, the interesting thing is, is similar to a lot of people that may have grown up, whether it be, you know, in growing up in, in an environment with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, or another religious or, um, I don't want to say strict, but a structured background that, that had a religious component to it um, and, and maybe even... Um, you know, for, for those that grew up in, in the LDS uh, religion, there, there's the, the word of wisdom. So you grow up with that. And so I really wasn't exposed to a lot of, of you know, drugs, alcohol. And even growing up in Hawaii, and everybody thinks that, oh, you're in Hawaii, everybody's smoking weed in Hawaii. And it's not necessarily <laughs> the case, right? And, uh, and so I grew up and I wasn't, you know, I, I grew up in the church yeah. and I grew up in that structure. And, and that doesn't mean that I didn't have moments where I experimented or different things that happened, but um, I didn't grow up um, drinking and, and having, you know, some of the things that, that, you know, some kids might experience in high school. And so it wasn't until I got to BYU, ironically, right, yeah. that um, um, things started to happen. And, and for me... It was as much a, a, uh, an emotional coping mechanism as, as, as anything else. Because as I mentioned, I come out of Hawaii as, as the, you know, the leading rusher in the state and these accolades and you know, kind of a, a celebrated athlete thinking like most of us do that, oh, I'm going to go to BYU and I'm going to have this great, I'll go on to the NFL. And then you show up at, at BYU as a freshman, or I did, and everybody had these accolades, right? Everybody was leading rusher in the state of Idaho and 5A class and different and all these different things. And you, you realize that, that uh, you know, you're, you're really not that unique or, you know, special or, um, um, it, it, you know, it, it starts to put things into perspective. So you were yeah. with the best of the best. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when that happens, I remember being at BYU as a freshman, and um, my freshman year we actually won the national championship, um, college national I championship. And, I know, was at the Naval Academy in, in 1984, yeah. right? And I had to memorize you guys' stats every day and report them back where I was marching that afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we had that, that experience. But for me, 
that means I'm coming into the college football game with you know the most competitive that there is in the country. Um, speaking of you know my different you know my personal position or the guys that I'm playing against, and so I remember being at BYU as a freshman, living in the dorms and and going to practice, and they had me holding a blocking dummy, and I and, and for for me from an emotional right standpoint, it was it, it was devastating, right from 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 just a, a social and emotional and mental standpoint. I, I was I was devastated. Right, I was hurt. I was having all of these experiences right. that I didn't know how to cope with. Right, and for for me, um, you know, I was, I had, you know, I knew what alcohol did. I knew what marijuana did, and so there was some of that. But I remember the first time that I was prescribed an opiate, and those feelings that I was dealing with, right, the emotional pain of not playing and feeling less than, as soon as I took that, I, it was a Percocet, I took a Percocet and a Soma, which is a muscle relaxer yeah. for those who are not familiar with it, but a very powerful one. Yeah. And um, I, when, I, when that hit my bloodstream, I remember instantly this feeling, this sense of euphoria, and like everything's okay. Yeah. And you know, if you can imagine for uh, uh, you know, a young man, 19, 18, 19 years old, and experiencing this emotional pain of, you know, disappointment, um, that, that, for, for me, looking back now, I can see that, you know, there's a predisposition probably genetically to, to the disease of addiction. That, that affected me so powerfully that I think, you know, that it, it made this indelible imprint in my mind, like, this is the answer. Right. Right. Not just to your physical pain, pain, because I don't even remember. I don't even remember why it was prescribed, because you know opiates obviously are prescribed, sure. physical pain and muscle relaxers to, you know, to aid in in, in recovery uh, of, a, of an injury. your back or right? something. Yeah. yeah. They used to give them out much easier <laughs> yes. than they. Yeah. Than they <laughs> and and so that started a pattern for me, of, you know resorting to the chemicals to deal with my emotional pain um, that lasted for many many years uh, after my sophomore season I had a major back injury and um, it, it you know coincided with a, another emotional emotionally uh, painful um, and maybe even traumatic experience for me which which interestingly enough was you know, the, the, this partner of mine, right? I call him my partner from the womb, my, my twin brother. Um, for the first time in our lives, we were, because we went to college together, we're separated. He goes on, a, on an LDS mission and to serve in Tahiti. And for the first time in my entire existence, I, I'm without him. Oh, my heavens. Right? Yeah. I did a twin study back in the uh, late 70s and 80s. And the brain chemicals associated with being an identical twin. Yeah. There's a lot of dopamine and catecholamines and endorphins and also oxytocin and vasopressin, which are those senses of bonding. Yeah, those powerful and, connecting and chemicals. The yeah. first time that twin leaves, that source leaves too. Yeah. And usually people move into 
you know, moderate to clinical depression. Your anxiety increases mm -hmm. during that. So, you know, we, we, found, we started finding that out back then of, wow, there's this huge chemical difference neurochemically in the brain mm -hmm. when they lose. So, so you're probably yeah. just going, what yeah. the heck is happening mm -hmm. to me? And yeah. nobody could explain it. Yeah, and really, to, to a large degree, kind of unaware that that was probably a, a source of some of this emotional pain, you know, coupled with, again, you know, the, the struggles that I was having, whether or not I was going to play, you know, because so much of, of you know, uh, an athlete's identity yeah. is wrapped playing. up in that, right? right? You know, yeah. it's in, in, and for me, when I was done playing, it was like uh, the identity crisis was very real. I'm no longer a Lemma Harrington BYU running back. I'm like, if not, if, and, and if I'm not that, who am I? Right. Right. And so another experience that took place during that time was after I had this back injury, after my sophomore season, I tried very hard to come back and play. It was not cleared by the doctors, and so I had to sit on redshirt that year. I remember being in Lavelle Edwards' office, legendary Hall of Fame BYU football coach who, who has passed away since, but a, a, a beautiful man, and I was sitting in his office, and he said, you got to think about going on a mission. You know, at that time, to be very frank, I was, I was nowhere you know, near worthy to, to, to be going on a mission. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't often share this story, but I, but I occasionally do. I went back to Hawaii on, and as was home for, for a period of vacation. And, uh -huh. and I met with my, my bishop and my stake president. And I remember my stake president encouraging me. He said, you know, he was asking me, do you want to go on a mission? I said, I don't think so. And he said, I want you to pray about it. And I remember I went home and I prayed about it and I received an answer. And it was powerful, a very powerful um, uh, inspiration like Alumni you need to go on a mission and I remember going back to his office the next week and he said did you pray about it I said yeah and he said and, and what and I said no, I didn't nothing and so you know if you can and you know I, I think we can you know yeah. understand the 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 pain the shame that comes with the denial of that right, right? Um, was overwhelming, and, and from that point on, my addiction, my disease, I'd been using, but probably, you know, escalated even to, to a higher level at that point, because I'm, now I'm dealing with this, this real sense of, uh, you know, betrayal. And yeah. at this time, the addiction was probably painkillers, yes. uh, muscle relaxants, and, yeah, and, and alcohol. Mixed with alcohol, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, and continues to to escalate because I'm using you know painkillers heavily, and, and and for those that are unaware of of the physical right uh, component of this, you become physically dependent. And there's a difference between physical dependence and addiction. Many people can be on a, a you know a medication for a period of time, become physically dependent, but they're not haven't crossed over into the brain right. disease of addiction. Um, but the physical dependency. Um, is also very powerful because then when you don't have the medications, speaking of the opiates, the body goes through a very uncomfortable, you know, which, which is saying it mildly, uh, withdrawal. Yeah. Right. And so for me, I had become so physically dependent on it that if I had, you know, would work to go 12 hours or so, I'd start to, without the medication, I'd start to get physically ill. Right. Right. And, and, and those 
those chemicals, those natural brain chemicals, yeah. start diminishing quite yeah. significantly. So your natural because it goes, I don't need to do this because he's right? creating this. And yeah. So we're not getting that, yeah. which, and so it, it makes it even worse. Yeah. So the way that my story progressed it was at a certain point, uh, it, got, uh, it, it got bad enough which which is an interesting way to, to to put it because there's so many levels of bad enough, right? Yeah. Um, you know, my my clients say it got really ugly here, and I say, you know, I always remind them, you know, really ugly. When it's really ugly, you have to remember that at some point it was pretty ugly, and at some point it was it was you Not know so extremely <laughs> extremely unattractive. You know, like all the things that led like yeah. you know most people would stop it like it's pretty bad. You know, but I wait till it's really ugly over here. Um, so at a certain point, I was in Provo. I had a prescription, and I had altered this prescription, and and uh, I think it turned it from a five milligram to a seven point five milligram, and then added some refills to it or something, which was you know, something that you know is is very illegal, right? A federal crime um, to 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 alter a prescription like that. I don't know if sure it's a federal crime, but it's very illegal. <laughs> and and you know, at that time I'm I'm not even thinking like, ah, oh, this is a bad, you know, this is this this is gonna send me to jail. Um, but I do that that and I take it to a pharmacy and the the, the pharmacist kind of looked at me sideways and said, Hang on a second. And I got panicked and I thought, Oh, I'm like the DEA is gonna come bust down my door, I'm going to prison for life. And uh, um, so I left. And I didn't get the prescription filled. I went back to to, to my house uh, at the time, living in, in Provo, and and I called our athletic trainer at BYU, and I said I got a pain management problem, and I need some help. And that was the first time I went to treatment. This was back in 1989, 1990, and um, and I remember I went through a 28 day program, which is was fairly common at that time, right? right. right? We, we we would refer to it now as like a spin dry um, program, right? <laughs> I like that, spin dry. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, you know, I was introduced to some of the uh, recovery principles, but I wasn't ready. I didn't, I didn't really think I was an addict. I didn't think that I had a, like I wasn't stealing people's prescriptions, right? Yeah. I wasn't doing some of the things I saw other guys doing that th those guys have a problem. I had a pain management problem in my mind. And my, my problem was that I, I, I didn't have enough medication, right? And, and so I had to figure out how to, to manage that. So I go to treatment and, um, you know, to be very honest, I, I used, before I left the treatment facility, I, the first pass I had to leave, um, you know, I thought I was being smart. I didn't use while I was out. I brought some back with me after I drug tested and I used. I mean, this is the, the insanity of the addicted yeah. brain. And um, so that was the first treatment. It wasn't until my fifth treatment and losing my family. Um, I had a young daughter at that time who's now 26 and, uh, and was married. And, and my, my wife had found out and was leaving me and moved back to Hawaii. And I finally got a treatment at a facility that was all about this you know, cognitive plus spiritual approach. I mean this kind of uh, a, a holistic approach to the healing of the disease of addiction. And that's where I finally was able to get some wow. help. Wow. You know? And 
you know, the, the story continues from there because I, I was sober for eight years and ended up back here in the state of Utah working for Channel 5 and then in the middle of the Olympics, uh, 2002, I was, I was going off the deep end on, uh, on a, a run, bender, whatever you want to refer to it as, but um, which eventually had me down at Pioneer Park buying heroin and then eventually back to treatment again in Hawaii. Uh, having lost my job at Channel 5. And so, you know, that for me was, a, was an important understanding or, or uh, you know, a graphic personal illustration, at least in, in my life, that this disease doesn't go away, Yeah. right? Um, and it, it, it may go into remission, but it's, you, you know, you're never, if, if left untreated, it will return. And it certainly did for me. And uh, when it did, it, it returned, uh, you know, bigger and badder than, than it was uh, previously. And um, I was fortunate to, to get back to treatment and not die because there, there were plenty of times that in that period of 2000 to 2002 where I could have, should have yeah. uh, died because of the disease. And... The one thing that the one of the biggest lessons that I learned when I went back to treatment, which is significant for me today, and there all the lessons are significant, but this was one of the big things. I got back to treatment in 2002, and I remember having gone through a 92, that same facility, that um, there were other guys, a handful, that were still sober from the group that I went through with, and I was curious. I'm like, what did these guys do that I didn't do? I had elders quorum president, I was active in church. I had all these things going on. And I was, you know, wondering, like, what separated them from me and their success from, from me being yeah. able to maintain my sobriety? And the thing that I discovered, one of the, the commonalities was that all of the men that, that were still sober were actively engaged and involved in recovery meaning that they were working with other alcoholics and addicts. And so when I came out of treatment that time, I made this commitment, like, I'm going to do that. And the, for the years that I did that, I remained sober. There were times when I didn't do that, and I struggled, and I'd go back to, you know, an outpatient That's treatment. That's actually part of the 12-step process, yes. isn't it? Yes, uh, which is step 12, which, which is to carry the message. And, um, you know, the, the powerful part of that and I shared this with, with my group yesterday morning in, 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 uh, in residential at Renaissance Ranch, was the, the fact that Bill and Bob, the founders of, of AA, um, they were working with a doctor, Dr. Silkworth, who was a, you know expert in the, the field of alcoholism at the time. And Dr. Silkworth's his observation was there was a certain category of alcoholic that was hopeless, like in spite of all the, the belladonna therapies and, and the different therapies that were available at the time, which were, were, were groundbreaking at, at that time. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were certain, a category of alcoholics that w were not responding to that. But he had a group that were recovering in spite of this hopeless diagnosis mm -hmm. of you know, being a hopeless alcoholic, which means that they would continue to drink in spite of the consequences, the negative consequences. 
But this group that was successful was this, this small group that would come in and share their message with other alcoholics that were in his facility. And he said, this is the observation. The people that they shared their message with, not all of them stayed sober, but these guys did, right? Which ends up becoming this you know, important part That's of the, the program, which is to carry the message. And if you want to keep it, give it away, right? Wow. Which is an, you know, an ancient gospel principle. Yes. So, yeah. um, and, that, and also when, when we share it, when we proclaim it, we then trigger processes in our brain that says, you have to live up to yeah. that which you're projecting. So it gives you an internal cause yeah. to maintain the sobriety. Yeah. When you're not doing that, there's not that connection. Yeah. So it, it has a very strong neurochemical structure too because yeah. anytime we proclaim something, then we feel we have to live up to the proclamation. Yeah. Holds and, us to our better self. Yeah. And they, you know, the, the, yeah. We hear this all the time, the best way to learn is to teach. Right, and and so it does. It reinforces right. these principles in our own minds, and um, you know, one of the other powerful components of it is is you know the, the the human brain has this natural tendency to forget or to minimize, right? Yes. Especially painful experiences, yeah. and, and and it does that in part for our survival, and so the important thing for for me has been. Like, let me remember and never forget the painful experiences that I've gone through and the miracle of my recovery. And part of, of that remembrance is when I see the newcomer come in, when I see a, a, the new guy stumbling into treatment at Renaissance Ranch, right? Which is the way that normally we come into treatment. When we don't come in healthy and strong right, and excited, sure. it's like, hey, right. what's next? We, we stumble in there. And, and so every time that happens, I see myself, I'm like, man, there, but for the grace of God, right, that old saying. And I, it reminds me that the disease has not changed out there. It's still doing the, and, and in a lot of ways, and I said this yesterday in group, I'm like, I thank the guy that's coming in because, you know, they come in, I ask, I ask I'll ask them the question, like, how is it out there? Oh, it sucks. Still sucks? Good. I don't have to go out and, tr and try myself. <laughs> don't need a it reminds me that, it, that nothing's changed. Yeah. And I don't have to go out there and experiment and try again because I can see exactly what's going on because I can see myself right. in each one of these clients, right. new clients that has come in. And for that, I'm grateful. And then I can, you know, share my experience, strength and hope. And then I, but I also, you know, get the benefit of their desperation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, this is Ken Krog and Tom Harrison. We've got Alema Harrington. We're going to talk you into one more uh, visit if we can. Is <laughs> that all right? Yeah. We want to hear about some of the amazing things you're doing now as you as you as you are giving yeah. back. Some of the things you learned. You know, he went back to school and became certified to assist others uh, besides his life experience. So, Alema, thank you for yeah. taking time with us today. Thank yeah, you. remembering is a powerful process, and we want you to remember to join us yeah. on March 29th and 30th at Little America. You'll get to hear more from Alema, and uh, I think you'll come away very blessed for coming. Thanks, everybody. EternalCore.org. Go out and register. Seats are going pretty quick. Yeah, come see us. <laughs>